I found a kind of clarifying moment of despair in the murder of uh, Muammar Gaddafi. The um, capture as the result of a United States predator drone attack connected also to a French jet that caused the convoy to be destroyed, and then he was captured. And um, it uh, then showed the what we today call the graphic images of the man being taken alive and wounded. And then he was shot and dragged all around and killed his dead body. And uh, the uh, horrifying character of this uh, murder uh, really uh, focuses a central issue that I'm dealing with, and I think uh, I want to ask you to deal with it too. And it has really nothing to do with this particular event or the predator drone attack on al-Aliki or the uh, the uh, uh, murder of uh, Osama bin Laden unarmed not so long ago. The uh, issue is not those particular, what I regard as uh, really horrifying actions. And it's not so much the um, quality of, uh, of, of, of the actual fact that, we, uh, that, that, that this country is now involved in <clears throat> a form of warfare that uh, never in a million years would have been officially sanctioned or um, approved of without the collapse of any government that did so until very recently, a form of, <clears throat> of, uh, of, of war as uh, targeted uh, assassination and uh, uh, um, um, highly mediated from bases thousands of miles away in which uh, the engagement is done over a computer screen and there's absolutely no um, ability of anyone who's caught in this to fight back the acute uh, um, one-sidedness of this which creates such terrible anger among those on the ground. All you need to do is see Robinson Crusoe on Mars, the marvelous early 60s uh, film now in the Criterion Collection to see the acute feelings of distress when people on the ground are being destroyed by a uh, faraway predator drone, in this case they're aliens, uh, and there's absolutely no way to um, to fight back at all. And the kind of feelings it engenders, just watch Robinson Crusoe on Mars and you'll sort of get it from the other side and you'll be able to see what's really so wrong about this that I can't uh, apparently have any impact in talking about. But that's not what I'm really thinking about. Uh, I accept all that because uh, it varies. Every century, every 20 years is a new form of uh, this kind of um, unbelievable inconsistency with founding principles uh, that anyone in any group does if it suits them and uh, once they have power. And uh, it, it, what, what shocked me so profoundly about this was the um, bloody-mindedness of the American public. That's what actually shocked me. It wasn't the initial event. We, th this is just one of many that will happen in a concatenation of such um, drone attacks and such murders of people that we, at this particular point, or anyone else, for that matter, wishes to get rid of for whatever reasons there are, 
good, bad, arbitrary, or absolutely totally grounded in justice. Uh, but the shocking thing to uh, me was the bloody-mindedness of the American public, at least for the most part, as reported. The bloody-mindedness of people on the left, the bloody-mindedness of people on the right, the bloody-mindedness of people on the center. Almost all political voices were just jumping up and down at the death of this uh, particular man, a terrible man, a man who's done awful things. Not, not for a second would one wish to defend this man's actions on this world. Not for a second. Uh, It's a very good thing that he's no longer in the position of power that he held. But what is is shocking is the degree of of absolutely joy in the streets uh, with with this particular uh, murder that happened in the particular way it did. And uh, no one spoke up. And uh, the bloody-mindedness, it it reveals that there's a very deep psychic rage underneath the surface in people. You see it, obviously, as I often say, but everybody knows it, on the Internet. We we see it in crime. We see it in manslaughter. We see it in the glee that you take from reading the obituaries that is not you. You you see it whenever someone you know gets into trouble and a part of you says, well, you know, he deserved it. Or, gosh, part of you quietly rejoices in the misfortunes of another. But to see it so obviously, you know, um, basically bonfires lit in honor of a killing, um, this uh, reveals that there's a very uh, deep, uh, often suppressed, but obviously not so much today, rage among people individually and collectively. And that's very striking to me. And it's very disillusioning and upsetting when you think of the way that this country supposedly thought of itself in relationship to um, due process of law. And, uh, you know, we were taught as children that the ends uh, never justify the means. It was one of these sort of mantras that you got, but you don't hear that very much today. Uh, getting him was one thing, but by these means... Uh, you don't even hear it. It's not even a factor. We, we just got him. You know, we got an enemy, uh, the bad guy. Uh, you never hear the word, well, but it's the means by which you did it that determine it. It's not the result. It's the way you res- uh, got to the result that determines the validity and ultimately the enduring quality for good or ill or the contaminating quality of the result. That's what's so interesting, that there's such a complete turning from things that only a while back were considered normal. And so it makes you really... Uh, wonder about the the whole stance you take towards the world. If the world is capable of changing to a degree of bloody-mindedness on the part of regular old uh, everyday um, American people, that would really not have been part of the national characteristic as a whole in times past. There would have been much more uh, a sadness, a deep distress, a tremendous sense of, um, gosh, that it had to come to this, a great sense of regret. I don't believe people actually um, jumped up and down about the um, the atomic bomb over Japan. Um, there were people who did, but for the most part, uh, it wasn't all, well, they got what was coming to them because of what they did in, in, uh, in, uh, in China. All of that may be so, but the rejoicing was less with the death of thousands and thousands of people. And I think this is really where you see a change that is very upsetting and disturbing. Now, I want to carry one other further aspect of it before I try to ask the question, which this podcast is really about. Where is there hope? 
Is there any hope? That is to say, is there any reason for loving the world when you see the world, as it were, behaving in this way and alternating its most precious convictions because of the present exigencies and ideas and attitudes and grievances of the present moment, altering principles that, you know, we talk about the Constitution and we talk about the Bill of Rights as being the great thing. We can't talk about the Bible. We can't talk about, you know, Christian foundations or any other foundations, even uh, John Locke, but we can talk about the Constitution. And yet when it suits us to um, to run counter to that, then we sort of look at the little constitution in our back pocket and we say, hmm, you know, maybe I shouldn't be carrying that around quite so uh, in such a, a, a worshipful manner. Uh, what was also <clears throat> terribly disturbing is not only in relationship to Gaddafi and al-Aliki and uh, Osama bin Laden, but it's uh, the, the silence of the churches, the silence of the Christian church. Not only the silence, but actually the blessing. You almost get the impression that sort of most conservative Christian people in this country are glad that we're doing these things. It's somehow like it comes with the territory, like to be a conservative Christian means you fight evil and you preemptively or uh, dramatically or with great, what's the word, resolve? That's the word to use. You re- a resolve about a robust response. You, 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 uh, you resolve, that's to be a Christian, to destroy evil with a robust and strong and perhaps even often preemptive way. And this is in service of the acts of God and the work of God. And you see see it in so many of the people. These are all churchgoers who are, you know, shouting and so happy and so congratulating right-wing people who are so congratulating the so-called uh, left, left-wing president, so-called, and, uh, and vice versa. And then you, you even look among the liberal Christians, and with the exception, as I always say, but it's an actual fact of the Quakers and of the Mennonites and a few lovely liberal Christians who are not heard and are considered way squeaky wheels, sort of Daniel Ellsberg, uh, you know, uh, or, or very, very strong conscientious uh, Jewish intellectuals like, you know, the man I just mentioned. But the, the, the voices of the mainstream um, – I used Ellsberg's example because I didn't want to say that he was operating out of any kind of religiously Christian view. He's operating out of his views, uh, and I think they're wonderful. But um, the uh, fact that the Christian church is not only saying nothing, it's not only saying something, no Christian leaders are saying anything to dispute what's happened or to say this is a terrible thing that we should be rejoicing over. These horrible, so-called disturbing or graphic images of a of a live POW being shot and killed, and and that somehow you know even the New York Times said if these images are real, we should be disturbed by them. Well, that means be disturbed. Then let the disturbance let the disturbance happen to you. But it's all covered over so quickly. And when the Christian churches who claim to be part of the Prince of Peace are uh, uh, following the Prince of Peace are just as much part of the communal celebration of these murders, whoever they may be. It has nothing to do with the actual crimes the man has committed. That was uh, The Sermon on the Mount was not about that. You, you just don't go around killing your enemies. I mean, we all have enemies, and these people are enemies. But you, he said, love your enemies. And uh, 
do good to them that that do harm to you. And anyone with that kind of perspective, the perspective of the Beatitudes, could not really rejoice. So you have to then say, well, these people who are rejoicing must not really have read the Beatitudes. So they must not realize that church going is connected to the Beatitudes. And, and he was the Prince of Peace. And we hear in the wonderful words of the prophet in the Old Testament, he shall turn their swords into plowshares. Um, and what has happened? There's no connection. So it got me so wondering about the Christian church. I mean, for heaven's sake, where is the voice, the authentic voice of, of uh, Jesus of Nazareth uh, in this particular issue? It, it seems to be nowhere in the churches. Now, maybe I'm just not reading anywhere, but I, I read a lot just like you do, and I don't see any evidence that any persuasive, distinctly Christian figure is making, is protesting against the bloodthirstiness and unsublimated rage of current American uh, response to these particular events that are going on. And uh, there seems to be either complete silence or more definitely very widespread approbation and delirious delight in the destruction of evil. And I don't see, I I can't connect that. That's that's amazing to me. I remember, but I know I've seen it. Let me give you two funny little examples. Then I want to quote by reading, um, going into the second question, which is the question of the podcast. How do we relate to a world which seems to have completely lost its senses and has absolutely no positive conscience uh, that I can see. How do you relate to it? How do you still love it? How do you not just decide to go into the wilderness forever and ever, ever, as opposed to reemerging, as I've sought to do in my own little way, uh, psychically, to see if some good might be accomplished? Um, the the I, I saw the disconnect very clearly in two, what you may think are small examples, but... <clears throat> One of the very definite things that Jesus specifically, he didn't tell people, he didn't say not to do many things. There are very few things that Jesus unequivocally said you shouldn't do. But he did say two things, interestingly enough, that are highly specific. First, he said, you should never um, put ashes on your forehead after you have put ashes on yourself as a mark of penitence. But after you put ashes on yourself as a mark of penitence or humility before God, relevant to your the repentance that you have to feel by comparing your own actions and thoughts with the beautiful, uh, almighty God of grace, love, hope, mercy, and justice, you should never draw attention to that by doing it in public. So whenever you go out having put ashes on yourself as a sign of penitence, always wash them off before you go out because you should never show it before men. Now, this is so interesting because when I was uh, a a clergyman in every church I ever was uh, officially the rector of or assistant in, everybody just loved Ash Wednesday. I mean, people just lined up. To this day, you go into churches in New York City and Chicago, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people see Ash Wednesday as something important, rightfully so, that Ash Wednesday is a kind of holiday of of humility, which everyone occasionally likes to express. But... um, we put ashes specifically on people's forehead, and then that's supposedly a witness, a la Mike Myers, at the MTV Awards not so long ago. And the interesting thing is, that's the only thing Jesus told us not to do. I used to say this. I was at a big church once, and I actually said this. You know, I can't do this. I cannot do put ashes in your forehead, which you're going to go out and parade around, because I was specifically told not to do it by my boss. And, you know, people would look at you like, I mean, I, I couldn't. Not only would they look at you speechless, but you couldn't actually do it. If I actually said, this year we're not going to do it, 
We're not going to do imposition of ashes on Ash Wednesday because Jesus specifically told us not to. And of course, until 1979, it was not in the prayer book. And it was one of the first things that Cranmer banned, you know, in the time of the English Reformation. I would have lost my job. And I said, well, don't fight about it. So I would sit it out and I'd sit up there in the chancel of the church while the other clergy or other people were doing the ashes. And occasionally I do it as an expression of goodwill and I'd concede the point. But there it was. Wasn't that fascinating that people crave something that specifically Jesus told us not to do? Another example, and this is, please, you're going to see this as an attack on Anglo-Catholicism. It's not. It's, an, it, it's a mention of what, what, how fallen the church is. Uh, Jesus specifically said, call no man father except your Father in heaven, except your heavenly Father. Call no man Father. Uh, Don't call a religious teacher Father, because you only have one Father, your heavenly Father. And uh, uh, constantly people wanted to call me Father throughout my whole time as an Episcopal priest. And I would constantly say, but, you know, Jesus said specifically, he didn't say don't do this activity or don't do that activity, which most Christians get so upset about, or don't get involved in this particular thing or that particular thing, which people claim he said, but he didn't. But he did say, don't call any man Father. And here everybody would want to call me Father Paul or Father Zal or Father this. And, you know, thank God I got when I got a doctorate, it could be doctor but God forbid call him mister. They had this need to elevate the parish priest in all sectors of Christianity uh, from with the Orthodox to Episcopalians and, and even Lutherans. But uh, they had such a need to elevate the religious teacher to a point of transference that their need to do that trumped what Jesus specifically said not to do. So what I'm just trying to say is I've seen this before, a, a radically obvious, overwhelmingly evident disconnect between the teachings of a religion and what the um, adherents of the religion want the religion to tell them. So I'm not, therefore, surprised at the disconnect when it comes to, you know, love your enemies. Um, um, don't, don't, don't attack those who persecute you. Um, blessed are you when, you know, um, if a man hits you in the cheek, uh, turn the other. You know, the, the fact that these are there and we don't obey them shouldn't surprise me after innumerable Ash Wednesday, uh, odd, bizarre encounters of desire with uh, biblical witness and uh, uh, clergy titles. It's just amazing what people will do in the service of their own needs as opposed to um, it all being consistent with what the very person they believe is the savior of the world is stated. And that is in, in so obvious. So you get to the point when you want to say, you know, wash your hands of the whole thing. Just move to, you know, as far away as you can get and just find a maybe a little community of like-minded hermits uh, and uh, just get as far away as you can possibly get. Now, in light of this, I want to, you know, what, where is there a hope? Where is there anything you can do? Where, uh, how can you live in a world, uh, not to mention a church, which is simply a form of the world, how can you live in a situation where there is this degree of hypocrisy based on power, this degree of uh, of inconsistency, and in this case, compartmentalization, based upon simply the desire, God damn it, to do it. Um, how do you live? I, I want to uh, read a paragraph from Jack Kerouac's novel, Desolation Angels, which I happen to love. And I want to uh, read to you um, uh, how he came to see the world. He did not have a hopeful view, and uh, that's why I want to conclude with Von Harnack, of all people, the um, marvelous uh, church historian from the 19th and very early 20th century, and finally with Aldous Huxley. Now, in uh, part three, page 335 of Kerouac's book, Desolation Angels, 
chapter 50, Kerouac writes this. It's going to be about his preparation for his trip to Tangiers. What a crazy picture. Maybe the picture of the typical American sitting on a boat, mulling over fingernails, wondering where to really go, what to do next. I suddenly realized I had nowhere to turn at all. But it was on this trip that the great change took place in my life, which I called a, quote, complete turning about, end of quote, on that earlier page, turning from a youthful, brave sense of adventure to a complete nausea concerning experience in the world at large, a revulsion in all the six senses. I'm going to stop just for a moment. Kerouac continues in a, a devastating uh, description of the world. The world, what I've been talking about in relationship to the world in which one lives today and the world even of a worldly church. Even in so peaceful, page 338, even in so peaceful and simple an act as reading world history in a comfortable cabin on comfortable seas, I felt that awful revulsion for everything. The insane things done in human history, even before us, enough to make Apollo cry or Atlas drop his load. My God, the massacres, purges, tithes stolen, thieves hanged, crooks imperatored. Dubs praetorianed, benches busted on people's heads, wolves attacked nomad campfires, Genghis Khan's ruining, testes smashed in battle, women raped in smoke, children belted, animals slaughtered, knives raised, bones thrown, clacking big slurry, meat-juiced lips, the dub kings crapping on everybody through silk, the beggars crapping through burlap, the Mistakes everywhere, the mistakes, the smell of old settlements and their cook pots and dung heaps, the cardinals like, quote, silk stockings full of mud, end of quote, the American congressmen who shine and stink like rotten mackerel in the moonlight, the scalpings from Dakota to Tamerlane and the human eyes at guillotine and burning steak at dawn, the glooms, bridges, mists, nets, raw hands and old dead vests of poor mankind and all these thousands of years of, quote, history, end of quote, they call it, and all of it an awful mistake. Why did God do it? Or is there really a devil who led the fall? Souls in heaven said, We want to try mortal existence, O God. Lucifer said, It's great. Bang! Down we fall. To this. To concentration camps. Gas ovens. Barbed wire. Atom bombs. Television murders. Bolivian starvation. Thieves in silk. Thieves in neckties. Thieves in the office. Paper shufflers. Bureaucrats. Insult. Rage. Dismay. Horror. Terrified nightmares. Secret death of hangovers. Cancer. Ulcers. Strangulation. Pus. Old age. Old age homes. Canes. Puffed flesh. Dropped teeth. Stink. Tears and goodbye. Somebody else write it. I don't know how to live with glee and peace, therefore. Well, that is just, he wrote up a storm when he wrote that in Desolation Angels. And uh, interestingly enough, the same theme, how to find peace and joy in that. And um, on a different note, but exactly the same idea, you see the famous Christian heretic theologian, as he's called, Marcion, <clears throat> who was, um, grew up on the, uh, on the Black Sea, 
Marcion um, was um, ha- came so profoundly to see the power of grace as over against the crushing weight of the law and the power of the God of mercy and love as over against the God of wrath and judgment. Sound familiar? Uh, that he was uh, condemned by the church as a rank heretic because he didn't do enough justice to the whole biblical picture of God. That may be so or not. And um, Adolf von Harnack wrote a very uh, wonderful uh, sort of novella in 1924 uh, on... a treatise on Marcion, and it's very brilliant because it's sympathetic to Marcion. But at the end, after showing how Marcion's view of grace really is what the church needs, he then says the only problem with Marcion is it's so focused on the the resignation and retirement from the world and the culture of law and condemnation in favor of a completely alternative world of grace. There's not much love in Marcion for the world of law, judgment, condemnation, pus and teeth dropped that there needs to be. And he, um, he, uh, he says, um, at the end of this very uh, uh, brilliant book, Marcy and the Gospel of the Alien God, Adolf von Harnack writes this, Is it man's task to pronounce condemnation upon the whole of reality in nature and history, insofar as it is not a matter of grace and freedom? Is it perhaps a mistaken kind of inwardness or even lovelessness, which when one demands that the entire world be abandoned as incapable of salvation, does not all activity presuppose the possibility of reform of the actual state of things and thus something originally good in it? This may signify the most important objection that one must still maintain in opposition to Marcion. In other words, that life itself must somehow be valuable. And uh, he uh, criticizes the great theologian, and by the way, von Harnack was a truly great figure, um, and this book about Marcion is a must-read. It is available in a 1994, I want to say, edition uh, from North Carolina. I think it's, let's see, 1990, an edition from Durham. Now, what he's saying is, if you see things as Jack Kerouac did them, and as I've seen it in connection to the church, and as I personally feel I see it with overwhelming um, brightness, darkness on the basis of this remarkable turnabout in American bloody-mindedness that is really quite shocking and quite uncommon and quite um, really uh, compelling, this this turn to a kind of bloody-mindedness and public delight. You know, what does Kerouac say? Eyes early uh, before guillotine executions and burnings at the stake, and those people getting up early in the morning to see these horrible public uh, hangings. I mean, is is this is watching these disturbing images and saying, you know, well, you know, thank we thank God we got him, you know, and uh, I mean, it, that's what I'm talking about. It's the bloody mindedness inherent in it that is so shocking. So, do we, do we just turn away from the whole world? Well, I'm going to finish by reading a passage that comes at the end of uh, Aldous Huxley's. Very intriguing concluding novel from 1962 entitled Island, and on it, uh, Aldous Huxley portrays a kind of positive um, uh, alternative to what he had stated in Brave New World, which is a dystopian or dreadful future. He shows a positive community where um, the various religious values that Huxley held dear are expressed in uh, education and in moral philosophy and in economic theory and farming and, uh, uh, and in attitudes towards war. It's a very, very remarkable book. 
and you don't have to agree with a word of it, but at the end, having stated, shown this very beautiful and powerful alternative, um, uh, the world intrudes at the end of the novel, once again, in a most destructive and horrible way, and what was so beautiful and ideal and wonderful is, in fact, under terrible threat. And so the hero, uh, a man named um, Will Farnaby, who's sort of been converted to a new view of life and a less worldly view of life, has to decide what he thinks about the incursion of the world at its worst. And I'm going to read this. This is from page uh, 352 and 353 from Huxley's novel Island. And uh, a terrible thing is happening as the world is crashing through the redeemed community of a kind of odd, I, I don't even know what the word for the ideology is, you'll have to read it yourself, but it's not Lutheran, uh, but nor, however, is it uh, any other number of possible futures. It's a very unusual future that he has limbed for us. Okay, uh, uh, he saw the headlamps and the roaring motors coming. Will, this is page 352, looked down at his burning bush and saw the suchness of the world and his own being blazing away with a clear light that was also, how obviously now, compassion. The clear light that, like everyone else, he had always chosen to be blind to, the compassion to which he had always preferred his torches, tortures, endured or inflicted in a bargain basement. His squalid solitudes with the living Babs, it's a terrible girlfriend that he destroyed his life with earlier, his squalid solitudes with the living Babs or the dying Molly in the foreground with Joe Aldehyde, that's his employer, in the middle distance. And in the remoter background, this is where we get into Kerouac territory. In the remoter background, he saw the great world of impersonal forces and proliferating numbers, of collective paranoias and organized diabolism, and always everywhere there would be the yelling or quietly authoritative hypnotists, and in the train of the ruling suggestion givers, always and everywhere the tribes of buffoons and hucksters, the professional liars, the purveyors of entertaining irrelevances, conditioned from the cradle, Unceasingly distracted, mesmerized systematically, their uniformed victims would go on obediently marching and countermarching, go on always and everywhere killing and dying with the docility of trained poodles. And yet, in spite of the entirely justified refusal to take yes for an answer, the fact remained and would always remain, remain everywhere, the fact that there was this capacity, even in a paranoiac, for intelligence, even in a devil worshipper, for love, the fact that the ground of all being could be totally manifest in a flowering shrub, a human face, the fact that there was a light and that this light was also compassion. Then there was a sound of a single shot and a burst of shots from an automatic rifle. The power of uh, that um, paragraph is that the man, having been converted to a pacific, ironic, peaceful, illuminated understanding of the world and life, culminating in a view of compassion for all things, is finally given to have compassion for the actual world which is crashing through and making its voice known and destroying whatever good has been accomplished. That is the power of this message. Now, I'm asking myself, most particularly, is it possible still to have compassion and to want to actually work to help work to present love to a world as bloody-minded as our own, a religious community as deaf and blind as our own, 
and a human being, myself included, who is as likely to fall off the wagon and become a recidivistic mess and terribly drawn back into the unutterable horror apocalypse now of, uh, of the human desperate situation and conflict, is it possible to find, nevertheless, a compassion for the image of God still in hearing, darkened, covered with ashes, but not to be taken outside the church door, by which uh, compassion and kindly regard and even ultimately Franciscan saffron service could be proffered? That is my question. I wonder what you think. Thanks so much and God bless.